Okay. So he's unraveling the rope attached to the um, little bucket and just about to lower it into the into the river. Okay, so we just dip it into the water just in case there's anything in the bucket left from previous sampling. Um, and then we'll drop it in the water, let it sink down a little, right, and then raising it to it the out. surface. There we go. So there's our water sample. Great. And then it's quite simple. We take our filter. So it's a little filter that goes into the into the syringe. Yeah, so it's a 0.25 micron filter. I'm Carolyn Wickware, and today on the PJ Pod, we're going to be investigating the hidden risk of pharmaceuticals in our rivers. What you just heard was a water sample being taken from the River Ouse in York. And then you faff about <laughs> with the plastic for a while, trying to get this like a Tesco's carrier bag. A couple months ago, I met up with Alistair Boxall, who's a professor of environmental science at the University of York, for a chat about his research. We've been monitoring the, the river systems for three or four years. We monitor about 15 sites around the rivers. Early on, we looked for around 30 pharmaceuticals. Now we look for around 60. Um, so we're talking thousands uh, of data points, and that's beginning to give us a picture of how concentrations vary by year, how they vary by month, um, and also how they vary spatially. Is it giving a sense of risk as well? Yeah, so we can take those data, we can compare them to uh, data from ecotoxicological studies, um, and that can give us an indication of whether you know, the single molecules are causing harm to the environment, or whether mixtures of molecules are causing harm to the environment. What is the big, uh, the big risk that you're looking into? I think my biggest concern in terms of pharmaceuticals in the UK river systems would be the antimicrobials and you know, the potential for them to be contributing to the AMR crisis. According to a new study published by The Lancet, more than 1.2 million people died from antibiotic-resistant infections in 2019. That is hundreds of thousands more than died from malaria or from HIV AIDS. To speak more about this, let's welcome our health editor. There's an increasing recognition that antibiotics in the natural environment are probably contributing to the problem. Mm. Um, How do you quantify that risk? So we look at about, I think it's 12 different uh, antibiotics. Mm. There have been safe levels set for those antibiotics and it's thought that those safe levels protect against resistance selection. Um, so what we do is we take our concentrations, we compare them to the safe levels, um, and that gives us an indication of whether you know, whether the levels could be causing um, resistance in the environment or not. Um, we do know that if we took samples here, we probably would, would detect resistant bacteria. One of the big unknowns is really what contribution antibiotics are playing to that resistance in the rivers and also what the subsequent risk is to human health. So how does that resistance transfer from here in the river back into the human population? That, that was one of the questions I did want to ask you is what is that link between these um, resistant bacteria and humans? How does it get from the river to us? So there's a number of potential pathways. Um, people, believe it or not, do swim in this river. And you know, there are other rivers in the UK where you have quite popular bathing spots. 
there will be antibiotics at those points and there will be resistant bacteria at those points. So it could be that those individuals would be exposed. If we consider, say, an agricultural area, farmers could be using the water to irrigate crops, you could be getting the bugs getting onto the crops and perhaps into the food chain. Mm. Um, potentially they could leach to groundwaters. I'm just picking up on, on the word could and perhaps a little mm. bit. What evidence is there for that link? We don't really know the true impact. We know that antibiotics occur in the river. We know that they occur at concentrations that can cause resistance in bacteria. What we don't know is how that resistance can jump back into the human population or, or animal populations. So to actually quantify the, the contribution of environmental exposure to the, the big AMR crisis is very, very difficult to do at the moment. If, if the link is still hypothetical, why is so much work going into testing British rivers? I think it's because AMR is such a big global problem. In 2019, it killed 1.2 million people. It's forecast that that number is going to increase. Uh, if the environment is contributing to that number, it's critical that we, you know, we, we understand what the contribution is and we put in place measures to mitigate um, the concentrations in the environment. While I was still in York, I wanted to see how Alistair and his team actually measured those concentrations. So we took the short walk to his lab. Hello, my name is Taylor Lane, and I'm an environmental chemist and toxicologist studying my PhD at the University of York. I do spend a fair bit of time in the lab, and uh, for the record, I wash all my own glassware. You can include that on the podcast, please. <laughs> is, that, is that a thing? I caught up with Taylor in a bright, very clinical-looking lab, surrounded by what appeared to be several mini-fridges. So welcome to the Centre of Excellence for Mass Spectrometry. Um, so the sample that we took in the use, this is what we would be running uh, on this instrument here. So Taylor is doing a PhD with me, uh, looking at how pharmaceuticals degrade uh, in the environment. So that is the mass spectrometer, but first we use a separation technique called liquid chromatography. So what this does is actually uses uh, two different mobile phases, one aqueous phase and one... Taylor went deeper into the inner workings of mass spectrometry than we needed for the PJ pod. They go through uh, different quadrupoles. We, is this a triple quadrupole? But basically, the sample is put into a machine that then moves it to another machine, which produces a graph of what compounds are in the water and at what concentration. So Taylor's method uh, is looking for six pharmaceuticals. The method we use for the water samples, we look for 61 pharmaceuticals. It's very impressive, actually. Shortly after my visit to York, Alistair was one of the authors of a study that made headlines around the world. In that paper, the authors claimed to have found levels of pharmaceuticals that could pose a threat to the environment and or human health, and these are their words, by the way, in a quarter of samples taken from more than 250 rivers worldwide. These pharmaceuticals included antibiotics found at levels that the researchers deemed as being unsafe because they could cause nearby bacteria to develop resistance. But what are safe levels of pharmaceuticals and how does the pharmaceutical industry assess that? Jason Snape is Global Head of Environment at AstraZeneca and he's funding some research into this. AstraZeneca also funding some research with the University of Exeter 
where we're looking at something called minimum selective concentrations. So that's the lowest concentration at which an antibiotic in the environment could select or enrich, encourage the growth of resistant communities. So again, we recognise there's a science gap and a knowledge gap in that area. Do you suspect that that research will yield some interesting results? Do you think that there's going to throw up some problems? I don't think it's going to throw anything significant up. The data that we're seeing at the moment tends to indicate that sometimes clinical data will drive environmental risks and human health will drive some of those environmental issues we've got to manage. But in in many cases, the data that we're getting from the environmental organisms is probably going to be quite protective. So there's clearly some differing opinions here. On one hand, the environmental science professor in York says AMR is his biggest concern with having pharmaceuticals in rivers and is publishing papers claiming potential risks to humans. While the global head of environment at a major manufacturing company doesn't seem too worried about it. Interestingly, reports from both the UN and the UK government's Environmental Audit Committee seem to side with the professor. The committee's report found that UK rivers are becoming breeding grounds for antimicrobial resistance. For instance, they cited evidence from Surfers Against Sewage, an environmental charity that teamed up with scientists in Cornwall to collect data on AMR in their members. They found that surfers are three times more likely than non-surfers to have antibiotic-resistant bacteria in their gut. Meanwhile, the UN has warned that resistance to existing drugs is increasing at accelerating rates, with the release of antibiotics into waterways potentially amplifying resistance. The problem being that the levels of antibiotics may be too low to be lethal to the exposed bacteria, but high enough to lead to bacteria developing antimicrobial resistance. But Jason has a counterpoint. I think that there's a lot of concern about the presence of any chemical in in waters, and that would be any environmental water. So it could be uh, groundwater, it could be surface waters from rivers, lakes, it could be all the way through to drinking water. But presence doesn't equate to risk. So that concern will be there because people can detect things. And the, the one thing that's certain in this world and in my 30 years working in this area is every decade, analytical chemists get better at finding things and the limits of detection and the precision of their instruments get two orders of magnitude better every decade. So I think maybe in 10 years from now, we'll be in a situation where an analytical chemist can actually find everything everywhere. So you have to move away from that discussion around presence to actually what's the consequence, what's the risk of that presence. Uh, And I, I think probably hand on heart, you could turn around and say that actually most pharmaceuticals present in any environmental matrix are unlikely to pose a risk. Uh, What you could end up with are one or situation or context-based risks, and that's more likely to be where you would have a high population density, so a lot of people in that region, where you may have inadequate wastewater treatment, so inadequate removal and degradation, and actually the dilution within that river might be low. So I think if you're starting to look at risk, I'd say at the highest level, very few drugs will pose a risk. But if you want to find a risk, you would have to look at a context or a situation level. The complete evidence might not be there yet, but that hasn't stopped medicines regulators from asking manufacturers for proof that they don't pose an environmental risk. 
Since 2006, manufacturers have had to submit an environmental risk assessment of any new medicines they want to be approved by the European Medicines Agency. But don't get too excited. They have no bearing on the outcome of the approval. In fact, I recently read through the 86 risk assessments submitted for all of the medicines approved by the EMA last year. 17 were said to be insufficient in one way or another, but they were all approved anyway. That's around a fifth. In response to these findings, the EMA told me that although 20% of environmental reports were missing data, almost all did submit more information post-authorization. They went on to say, The ERA is based on conservative principles in the estimation of risk based on the worst-case scenario of environmental exposure. This includes a conservative estimate of environmental risk based on non-observed or low effects in organisms belonging to at least three trophic levels of testing. Since the ERA became a legal requirement, only a very small minority of human medicinal products have been shown to constitute a potential threat to the environment. Maybe so, but these requirements have only been in place since 2006, and many of the drugs we use regularly are far older, and it's these drugs that researchers like Alistair are finding in the world's rivers. So, what's being done downstream when drugs that already exist are being prescribed and then taken? How can we stop these existing drugs posing a potential risk of AMR in the water? The NHS in Scotland is the first organization in the UK to start testing ways to eliminate pharmaceutical residues from hospital wastewater. And I spoke to a pharmacist at the forefront of this effort. Yeah, so we've got a PhD student at the moment. Uh, Manuel, who is working on nanotechnology. Um, He's trying to develop nanotechnology to remove drugs from our hospital water at source so that some way we can get our hospital water, um, remove the drugs, and then the water that we end up sending to the wastewater plant will be clean um, and not have pharmaceuticals into it. So he's in his second year of his PhD. Sharon Flager is a consultant in pharmaceutical public health at NHS Highland and a professor at Robert Gordon University. And even while research continues into the question of the actual harm caused by drugs in our waters, she and her team at NHS Highland have taken a precautionary approach by putting their efforts into fixing the problem upstream by funding research into high-tech filters to remove pharmaceuticals before they reach the environment. There are also other filters available um, across the world um, that can remove pharmaceuticals. One of the pressures that water utility companies are under is the cost of installing um, this. And across the UK, um, we have an estimate of between seven and eight billion pounds to upgrade water treatment plants. Uh, And even if we upgraded it, you know, new drugs are coming on board all the time. We we don't know if if the filters would um, remove all drugs all the time. So that's why it's so crucial that in the NHS as professionals, but also as patients and members of the public, that we try to do those upstream things as well. Sharon is adamant that we shouldn't just be removing drugs from the water before it reaches the environment. We should reduce the amount there in the first place. Really cleaning the water is trying to fix a problem after it's happened. So we should be trying to prevent that problem. We know in the NHS that probably at least 10% of the drugs that we prescribe shouldn't be prescribed at all. Um, We know that up to 50% of patients don't take their pharmaceuticals as they're prescribed, they're wasted. Some of the other things we can do is to educate patients about medicines, um, that they shouldn't stockpile their medicines, they should only order their repeats when they need them. They should take their medicines as directed. 
Um, something else that's really useful is that they should dispose of them in the correct manner because people think that disposing of their medicines that un unwanted or out-of-date medicines down the toilet is the safest thing to do because they don't want to put them in bins in case their kids open the kitchen cupboard doors and get them out of the bins. So a lot of education still for people to return their medicines to their local community pharmacy to make sure that they're incinerated and um, disposed of correctly. But why put so much time, effort and money into nanotechnology and changing practices for both prescribers and patients when the risk of antimicrobial resistance from pharmaceutical pollution in rivers is still not certain? Because antimicrobial resistance or AMR is, is the next big public health challenge. It's going to be pandemic plus. Um, there are already estimates that by the year 2050, AMR will be killing um, about 10 million people across the world every year. So it's staggering, staggering numbers to consider. But more than that, more than killing people, it means that healthcare will change completely. We will not be able to carry out some of the operations that we take for granted right now, like caesarean sections, like hip operations, hip replacements, because we won't have prophylactic antibiotics um, to go into surgery with. So it's really important that we try our hardest to stop antimicrobials getting into the environment. Even with all the gaps in our knowledge, Pandemic Plus doesn't sound like a risk worth taking. Maybe it's time we take cues from the COVID-19 pandemic and start working to prevent a public health crisis that may or may not occur. And it's not just UK rivers we need to worry about, as Alistair told me on the banks of the River Ouse. We know that antimicrobial resistance is a mobile thing. Um, all you need is for a bug to be on an individual and that individual to get onto an aeroplane and it will then transport around the world. So I think in terms of solving the, the issue of AMR, you know, we need to clean up systems globally. We can't just uh, look at systems like York. So by all accounts, AMR is going to be an increasing problem going forward. I guess what we can't say for sure yet is whether pharmaceuticals in our rivers will contribute to that significantly. It seems to me from what I've been hearing though, AMR is such a big risk that we can't wait around for the evidence before taking action. You have been listening to The PJ Pod, brought to you by the team behind The Pharmaceutical Journal. This episode is presented by me, Carolyn Wickware, and produced by Jeff Marsh. If you want to make sure you never miss an episode, hit follow and subscribe wherever you access your podcasts. If you have any comments about this or any of our other episodes, please get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag PJPod. Thanks for listening. <laughs>